hope you heard the news. We're going to circle back on a couple of very important newsworthy issues, and they happened some time ago, but we're circling back to them because sometimes those things go by us pretty quickly with the news cycle, and I want to come back and, and highlight a couple of things that are absolutely very good news for all of us. Whether you follow Christ or not, these items that I want to talk about are very good news for everyone in this country, and we should rejoice and celebrate. Not everybody is, but we should. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the place where we stretch each other in God's direction, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we live in a world that stretches us in all kinds of directions. Isn't it time we stretched in God's direction? Isn't it time we moved closer to his ideas, align ourselves with his purposes, his will? And I say, yes, it is. And that's what faith is about. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because if you believe God is trustworthy, then you'll align yourself with him. You will follow in the way you should go. So let's talk about some things before we get into some other things that are Well, equally controversial. I'm not sure these first two items are very controversial, but people say they are. Uh, We'll get into them. Oh, and by the way, I am Pastor Rick Stevens. I pastor a real church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. We're a church like many other churches. We are attempting to be faithful to God, hold fast to the Bible, teach the Bible, let the Bible inform our understanding of our times and of the decisions we need to make. And I hope you attend a church. In fact, I would urge you to attend a church and participate and get involved. But find a church that is closest to the Bible. That's very important. Very important. I can't tell you a brand name necessarily that is better or worse because there are better or worse local churches. And I think it's time for us to focus on local churches. And it's time for all of us to attend churches that are closest to the Bible. Forget about if they're closest to your house. Some people drive a long way to go to work. And then they want to look for a church that's just down the street, and they don't much pay attention to what's involved in that. No, go to the church that's closest to the Bible and get involved where you can participate. I I can't stress that more. I guess you get the idea. But anyway, let's turn to these items that I was mentioning. Very good news coming out of the United States Supreme Court, of all places. There have been some good things happening this term in the court, and they recently issued two opinions and I want to make sure we don't miss them. They brought these opinions forth at the end of June, which was the end of the time they usually announce opinions. And the first one has to do with religious liberty in the workplace. We all believe, as our country has was founded, that we should have freedom of conscience or religious liberty. The, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment to the Constitution, keeps the government out of our religious convictions and our worship practices. We can take our religious convictions to the marketplace where we live. We can live them out any place we go at any time in this country. And the government needs to keep their hands off of us. Well, here in this decision, Groff versus DeJoy, the Postmaster General, Mr. Groff worked for the United States Postal Service. And he had a sincerely held conviction 
that he wanted to go to church on Sunday and he did not want to work on Sunday. He believed Sunday was set apart for rest, for honoring God, and he was not going to work on Sundays. That was his deeply held religious conviction. Well, it comes out of one of the Ten Commandments we like to talk so fondly about. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, that Sabbath, which was Saturday when that commandment was given to us, has become Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. We get that. And Gerald Groff said, no, I'm not working on Sunday. He had this deeply held conviction. Well, that was fine because the United States Postal Service didn't deliver mail on Sunday, so it was no problem until they had a contract with a company you may have heard of, Amazon. And the Postal Service got work, was hired by Amazon to deliver packages on Sunday. Well, Mr. Groff didn't like that. He said he wasn't available. They worked around it a little bit, if I remember the case correctly. And I did read the opinion. By the way, you can always read these opinions, and I encourage you to do that. There's so much distortion in the press. You read these opinions. They're not really that complicated. You could follow the train of thought. Some of the legal-ish stuff you won't care much about, but you can get the idea. Read the opinion. Don't read somebody's opinion about the opinion. So anyway... The Amazon contract came along and they needed to deliver parcels on Sunday and he said no. So he transferred to a different section of the post office, a more more rural setting where they hadn't started delivering packages on Sunday and everything was fine. He just moved to a different spot. He was happy to do that and it all worked out until that new post where he was working began delivering packages on Sunday and he said no, can't do that. Well, they tried to work with him a little bit in the process of all of this. He steadfastly refused. He was was disciplined for not showing up for work on Sundays. And eventually, under all the pressure and the conflict, he resigned his job. But he didn't stop there because he filed suit under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Well, what he essentially was saying is, listen, the government says we have freedom of religion, that we are free to express ourselves, why does the government then force me to work? And the United States Postal Service, of course, is a quasi-government agency at this point, I guess you'd have to say. The case made its way through the courts and ended up in, in the United States Supreme Court. And the decision came down that the United States Postal Service under existing law and under the Constitution, had to make provisions for Mr. Groff to be off on Sunday so he could worship. In other words, it sustained his religious liberty. Now, over time, I've heard a number of people talk about how their workplace required them to work on Sunday, and they didn't want to do it, but they felt coerced or they would lose their job. Let me say, and I'm not legal counsel here, so don't don't call me a lawyer and say, well, my lawyer... Pastor Rick said, no, that's not what I'm saying. But based on this precedent, you have legal foundation now from the United States Supreme Court to say to your employer, no, I'm not working on Sunday. Some years ago, I knew some people that worked for a Florida company. And that company, every year, had a required meeting on Sunday morning. Every employee had to show up at the threat of losing your job. They were that coercive. Well, I've said to some of the people, I don't really think that that's right that they can make you do that, and I think you could express, you could um, uh, 
tell them that and they should ex- uh, respect your convictions. Well, nobody wanted to do that. But now everybody should be able to do that because the court says no, the businesses can make adjustments to allow you to have your time off on your Sabbath or Sunday. So take heart, everybody. That's good news for us. Now, might it have some other implications for emergency services, hospital employees, things like that? Maybe, but that's the brilliance of the Christian faith. When we serve people for reasons other than uh, our own personal gain or for reasons that require us to be available to them more often, the Christian faith respects that. But by and large, Christians have been coerced into submission, and we should not be, should not allow ourselves to be. We kind of learned that from the book of Daniel. We've talked about Daniel a little bit, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, I think, when we get to it here today. Well, I also want to point out that there was another Supreme Court decision that has enormous impact for all of us as well. It's especially important to followers of Jesus because we have these deeply held convictions, but it also respects everybody else's deeply held conviction that they don't ever need to be coerced, forced into saying something that violates their conscience because the government says, say this or else. So there was a case came out of Colorado. Colorado has been known for some of these coercive kinds of things. The case is known as the 303 Creative case. And what happened was Lori Smith designs websites. And she recognized that Colorado law threatened her if she did not comply with their expectations. And she said, when I design a website for someone, it's personal and it's personal for them and it's personal for me. And it's essentially speech. Her concern was that she would be coerced into and required to create a website for a same-sex wedding. And she had deeply held religious convictions that she could not do that because she did not support same-sex marriage. Well, the lawsuit made its way through the courts And we got the decision recently. Now, I had particular interest in this lawsuit because back in December uh, of last year, I was invited by the Alliance Defending Freedom to go to Washington, D.C. and to be in Washington when this case was heard. Now, to be sure, we didn't get invited into the Supreme Court chambers. That would have been really nice. But not everybody can get in. That's reserved for certain people. And that's understandable. So we went to Washington We had a a remarkable meeting the night before, a dinner, prayer meeting. We met Lori Smith and her family, heard from them. They are wonderful people, courageous beyond measure. We heard some of the story that she had gone through on this. And, and, you know, I, I don't doubt people when I hear them say this, but when you're there and you hear it for yourself and you experience the, the uh, interaction with these people who have been through such awful things, it, it really makes a much bigger impact. So we, we heard Lori tell her story, and as people were telling the story, as she told parts of it, one of the things that really stands out to me is that when she first stood up and said she was going to take this position and she was going to pursue a relief remedy in court, all manner of vile threats were sent her way. I mean, 
I, I can't remember the, the specifics of, of what they told us, and, and I think I'm thankful for that, because if I could remember, I probably would not tell you. It was just that bad. She was so uh, alarmed, so afraid for her life and well-being, and for the life and well-being of her family, that early on when this all started happening, she was so afraid, she actually slept on the floor of her house away from windows because she was afraid someone might drive by and shoot at her house and injure her or her young daughter. I mean, that, that's just unconscionable to think in this country, but that's the kind of stuff she faced. The, the threats continued through the process, and it became so bad that at one point, they had to assign an attorney from her legal team to screen her emails because people were emailing her such vile things that, that it was too upsetting for her. And so this attorney would go through the email and screen out the ones that she should not have to deal with and should not have to see. This is the level of vitriol that goes on when you dare to say this country has historically and constitutionally guaranteed our religious liberty, or more specifically in this case, our freedom to speak according to our conscience. Now, you would think everybody would agree with that. Now, I, I don't agree with every opinion that I hear people talk about it, but I do agree they are entitled to express themselves. But that's not what the intolerant left says these days. They say you have to express only what we approve, and you have to think only what we think is right, and if you don't, we are coming for you. Now, that is not an overstatement. It sounds kind of hysterical to some people, but you need to pay attention. If you haven't paid attention, you will think it's hysterical. If you have paid attention, you're not surprised to hear me say that. So I went to Washington, D.C., and we had this meeting the night before, and then in the morning, when the case was going to be heard, we had a prayer meeting as well before the, we left for the court. We happened to be leaving the hotel at the same time as Lori and her legal team, and so we waved at them and blessed them as they went on their way to prepare for the hearing. And then we made our way, got into the vans and made our way up to the the sidewalk outside the Supreme Court. Now, you've probably seen pictures of the Supreme Court facing the court. Behind us was the United States Capitol building, but facing the court, you've seen that. And that's where we held a rally. We had been planned, planning to have a rally and had permission to have a rally there. Many speakers came. It was going to be a three-hour rally because we didn't know for sure how long the court session would last. And we wanted to make sure that our presence was there as we prayed for and as we agreed with and as we supported Lori and her family and her legal team. Speaker after speaker made the case for freedom of speech and how that was so important. But the entire time this was going on, I mean continuously, there was the rudest, vilest interruption from those who oppose free speech that I could have ever imagined. So there are speakers trying to make their point, and at the same time, a couple of these opponents to free speech would walk around the edge of the crowd and use these handheld sirens. You may have seen them at, at a sports event or something, but they're, they are ear splitting. And they would go off all at once, and then they'd 
stop and then they'd go right back again. It was a near continuous sound of the blasting of that siren. They also had a, a loudspeaker through which they played continuous, loud, disruptive music. They would shout the most vile things at the people standing there, at all of us. They would attempt to muscle their way into the middle of the crowd to disrupt the whole thing. And fortunately, some of us were able to resist that and stand shoulder to shoulder and keep them out. But this went on nonstop for three hours. They were there the whole time we were. They did not leave until we left. It was most remarkable. When you see that kind of vitriol, it has an impact. And I want you all to realize that. Well, the good news is the court ruled in Lori's favor and protected freedom of speech. It said in its opinion, and again, I read this opinion too. These opinions are not difficult to read. You graduated from high school, didn't you? Well, you ought to be able to read these. And again, don't worry about the legalese. You may have to skip over some of that. But you can get the basic idea. You can get the idea from the beginning and then the summary statements at the end if you don't read all the stuff in between. But they protected freedom of speech for every American. And that is so important. That means that the government cannot compel you to say something that violates your conscience. When you go to school as a student and your teacher teaches you and says you have to put this answer down because this is what you must believe, you don't have to do that and they can't penalize you for that. If you're a teacher... You have every reason to point to this case and say, hey, wait a minute, I work here, but the government can't compel me to violate my conscience and do this. And I know the legal stuff gets messy, but this is a huge victory for all Americans that believe in free speech. Now, to be sure, not everybody does. Like I said before, they just want you to say what they believe and want you to believe. We resist that and reject that. I also want you to know, particularly in this 303 creative case, I've watched a little bit of the reporting, read some things about it. I don't watch hardly any television news anymore because it's so distorted and so pointless. What I see when I look at the printed stuff online is repeated efforts on all of these things to frame them in ways that aren't true. They just report a lie as though it was the truth. They twist things to say things like, well, this didn't protect this certain group's rights. Well, it wasn't about protecting their rights. It was about free speech. I saw an article trying to drag it down through another means, saying this person never did what they said he did. Well, that's not the heart of the suit. That's not what mattered. And you read the opinion and you realize that's not what mattered. They're just trying to pick on things to try to undermine the concept of free speech. If you don't believe this is happening, you need to pay attention. And you need to join all of the rest of us who are speaking out about this because if the church does not stand, we're going to be crushed by all of this. And we need to learn our lesson and follow the example of a man named Daniel. And we've been talking about that through the lens of Daniel on several things. And I want to remind us again today, some of you are going to say, don't you know anything else except Daniel? Well, I I know a few things, but Daniel's so important for us right now that we need to make sure we don't miss what's going on. And you may remember the story. If you haven't, go back and read Daniel chapters 1 through 6. Those are the key chapters. The rest of the book is much more difficult to interpret, and you will find yourself as they say, a lost ball in high weeds. 
And that's not because you're not capable, that's just because that's a specialized type of literature. And you'll get more good out of Daniel's chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 than the rest of the book. So Daniel chapter 1 tells the story of God giving Jerusalem, giving his people to King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king that came to besiege the city. It's very clear as Daniel tells the story that this was not a victory for King Nebuchadnezzar. This was God giving his people to the pagan king. Now you might say, why would God do that? Well, he didn't do it because he wanted to, and he warned them repeatedly. That's what we're doing here when we warn each other about this nonsense of free speech, this erosion of religious liberty. We are warning each other that we need to hang on to what God has given us and stand up for it lest we lose it. And the farther we run away from what God says is true and right and holy, the more we subject ourselves to the discipline that God may be even though reluctantly, required to bring on us and our nation. So Daniel was in the royal court in Jerusalem when God gave the city to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar decimated the city, destroyed it, and took the people away into exile, including, and their specific explanation of this in Daniel chapter 1, he wanted the brightest and the best from the royal court in Jerusalem. Those people had wisdom and insight, And part of the spoils of war was you take those well-educated, gifted people and you take them home to serve you as a wise man in your royal court. And yes, that was what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to give the king wise counsel. So he brings them home, gives instructions for them to be trained in the language and literature of the Babylonians, a course of study that they honored and they embarked on. They learned the things. But early on, you may remember the story, early on, Daniel objected to one thing. He and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were supposed to be fed from the royal diet, the royal rations, the king's table, if you will. And they objected. Daniel said, no, I'm not going to defile myself with that food. Now, exactly why he thought that was a defilement, we don't know for sure. Several things we could speculate about, but... The exact reason is not as significant as the fact that Daniel resolved. He made up his mind. He was not going to do it. God gave him favor with the overseer, the man who was in charge of his care, who would serve him, who would bring them the food. And Daniel said, I'm not going to eat this, and and suggested that they have an experiment of alternate foods. He wanted vegetables instead of the king's rations. The overseer honored that because God gave Daniel favor. It turns out Daniel and his buddies physically did so much better than everybody else, and they learned things better. They were at the top of the heap. They were at the, we would say they were at the top of their class. Well, we need to learn from Daniel and his friends, and I've suggested from a man named Everett Piper that we use a framework to evaluate things in our world so that we can make good decisions about where to stand. And I want to talk about using that framework today on this issue of transgender ideology. Not quite sure why the church shies away from this so much. Really, the church could keep it as simple as saying, in the beginning, God created men and women, and that's that. Well, there's always more involved in things, and and we can help each other with that. And I want to talk about what the Bible says about that creation. And we're going to get to that. But let's first remind ourselves 
very important about this four-part grid or template or however you want to think of it, test to help us understand what we can do to make good decisions and how we can figure out where to stand and what to stand for. And, uh, and from Everett Piper, who was the former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, he used these four concepts to guide the university in his early days as the president and get that university and keep that university on track the way they needed to go. So there were four things they focused on. Number, number one, the first thing they focused on was the primacy of Christ. They made it clear that they were focusing on Jesus and he comes first. Now to Christians, that shouldn't be a surprise. Go back to the Ten Commandments we referenced earlier. What God say? Have no other gods before me. So that makes sense, the primacy of Christ. And make no mistake, people want to say, well, is Jesus God? Yes, that's abundantly clear from the New Testament. We're not going to litigate that today. The primacy of Christ was first. The second was the priority of Scripture. Now, in the academy, this is very important, or I should say at, at universities, sometimes we say in the academy, they, they have an, un, an understanding of, of various types of literature that helps them pursue understanding and knowledge. And so some of it is viewed as more valuable or viable or beneficial than others, trustworthy. Maybe there's other ways of describing that. But in his university, Everett Piper said, we're going to follow the primacy of Christ and secondly, the priority of Scripture. That's a clear signal that if God says it, if the Bible says it, then we need to pay attention to it and give that literature first place in our understanding. So it comes through above anybody else's opinion, anybody else's science, anybody else's anything. We look at the scriptures to help us. Now, to be sure, there's a whole lot involved in interpretation. There's a whole lot involved in interpreting the scriptures. I get that. We're not going down that road either, but I want you to know I understand it. That's not really difficult in the case we're looking at today, and in most cases it's not. It doesn't play much of a role. Most of the time we just need to elevate scripture to a priority place to a place that we recognize that God in his word, in the Bible, has given us the truth. And that's the third thing. He said the primacy of Christ, the priority of scripture, and then he said third, the pursuit of truth. Now that's very important in academic studies. You want to know what's true, what's right. You want to understand it. And so he makes that a key component of their framework, the pursuit of truth. And rightfully so, because we don't want to pursue that which is false. We want to pursue that which is true and right, so that we can have confidence in it. So we can trust what we understand, trust what we have sorted out, trust what God has told us, trust what God has helped us figure out on our own, but we want to pursue truth. We don't make things up as we go along. We don't look at something and say, hmm... I don't like that very much. I think we ought to change it this way. I don't like, in the case of the transgender stuff, I don't like that I'm biologically a male. I think I should be a female. Or I don't like that I'm biologically a female. I think I should be a male. You know, we don't make up the truth. We pursue the truth, that which is reflected in reality. And of course, there's one argument you can use. We'll get into some more. 
that, that supports this idea of male and female is that it reflects reality. It's the truth, and the truth ref- is, is really what we're talking about. The truth is a reflection of reality. So there's three, primacy of Christ, priority of Scripture, and the pursuit of truth. The fourth one is the one that I think that we have the biggest difficulty with. Maybe not. You can argue with me about that. That's fine. But I think this fourth one is the challenge of our times, and it's the practice of wisdom. The practice of wisdom. You see, once we've made Christ primary, once we've prioritized Scripture, and we look to that as our foundation and our best source of reliable information. Once we've determined that we're going to pursue the truth wherever it takes us, and we're not going to be afraid of it, then we can sort out and say, okay, this is what we must do. This is what we must not do. This is what I'm confident I should take on and and the direction I should head, or this is the direction I should avoid and stay away from. The practice of wisdom. Now, too many times in the Christian community, and I mentioned this to some people just last night, and they weren't so sure I was right, but we'll see. I hope I'm wrong. What I begin to observe is that Christians don't want to stand up. They want to be considered nice. And any little kerfluffle, thanks to my Canadian friends for that word, any little kerfluffle or upset causes them to react as though they're allergic to it. And so any little thing that happens, Christians immediately have this tendency to pull back and to not pursue that conflict. Now, none of us wants to pursue conflict for conflict's sake, but if a conflict comes to us, we have to stand up for that which is true. We have to stand up for the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth. That standing up is the practice of wisdom. And that's what Daniel did. In chapter 1, he stood up. Now, we would look at that and say we don't understand why, but clearly he knew, and clearly God knew, because God honored that. God is going to honor you when you stand for truth, when you stand for Christ, when you stand for Scripture, when you practice wisdom. Take heart. You're going to need to stand. I want you to stand. Stand. When you can't do anything else, stand up and say, this is what I believe. That's where I am. Well, we're going to continue some more. Don't go away. I'm Pastor Rick. go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X dot com. Save 20% by using promo code 
out loud at cofixrx.com. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. AmericaOutloud.com If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. We're back and we're talking about this sometimes controversial subject, but I don't think it should be that controversial. We talked about two Supreme Court opinions that the popular press is calling controversial everywhere you turn. They're not controversial. We're just focused on trying to find the truth and practice wisdom. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we stretch in God's direction. Too often the church, the people of God, shrink in the face of controversy or challenge, and we're going to stretch toward God because nothing, underline that, nothing diminishes God, and nothing surprises God, and nothing puts God off balance, and nothing is too difficult for Him to handle, and we can trust Him. And that's what we do here, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we trust Him. You do, don't you? Well, let's. I think that's important. I think we can do that. I think we must do that. And so we've talked about this idea of transgender ideology, and we're trying to bring bring clarity to the situation and trying to look at it through this framework that I borrowed from Everett Piper, the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. And we've been trying to apply that to things in our day, and I want to take that a little bit further because well, the church ought to be able to have something to say about this whole business of transgender ideology. Now, what I mean by that transgender ideology is probably pretty obvious to you if you've been paying attention. It's the idea that that we do not have a fixed gender, that we are not male or female. We can be some combination of those on some kind of a sliding scale that begins and ends hardly anybody knows where to say. 
That's sort of inherent in the ideology, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's first go back to the scriptures, because if we are going to give primacy to Christ and priority to the scripture, then we need to start there. Primacy to Christ, because the Bible clearly teaches, and if you want a verse to to look up, look up Colossians 1.16, clearly teaches that, that Christ was present, Jesus Christ was present at creation. So we don't make this weird, manipulative dichotomy between God and Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They are one. That's a whole different conversation. We're just assuming that because we all tend to believe that's true. Jesus is God. God is revealed in Jesus. End of story. So, because Christ was present at creation, and because it was at creation that we get a very clear statement from God about the whole idea of how he created people, it seems to me that we should go back there and see what God said and how the story that he has given us in Genesis about creation informs our understanding and helps us sort our way through this gender stuff to clarity, because that's what we need. Clarity. There's an awful lot of confusion going on. And we, the people of God, we need to bring clarity to it, because one of the great gifts we have to the world we live in is the truth. So let's talk about what the Bible says about this whole business of of how God created people and where we get the concepts of male and female. So I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Imagine that all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You open your Bible, you'll probably find it's a little stiff right there because it's not one of the places that falls open easily. But take a look at Genesis chapter 1. I want to read just a couple of verses. I'm going to use the New Revised Standard Version Update Edition. The English translations I've looked at are pretty much the same. I didn't find a lot of that. I don't find any text issues, for example, in this. It's pretty straightforward what God is saying here. So in verse 27, Genesis reads like this. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And I'm going to interrupt the reading there. That's not the end of the paragraph, but it serves our purposes. And that goes on into some other things, the way that the scripture is written at that point. So I want us to focus on this idea that it says, God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's a very interesting way that God says it there. Very important that he emphasizes that they were created in his image. Very important that he is clear to point out that he created male and female. And it's clear to point out that God blessed them. So something is going on here that's very significant. Different approach to creation than any other aspect of creation that we that we would read in Genesis chapter 1. So let's make sure that we understand what it is that God is saying and then how that connects to ge- this transgender ideology. First of all, it says that people, humans, were created in the image of God. Now that's a very big subject and people wrestle with what that means that people were created in the image of God. 
and I don't think that we're going to unpack too much of that today, but I would say this, that when you look around and you see people, and I know some of you are going to say, well, really, all of them? Yes, all of them reflect in some way the image of God. Now, you might say, well, that person surely looks a little odd. Could they be really created in the image of God? Yes. Maybe they've distorted the image by their behavior or the way they have treated their bodies. I can't say that they wouldn't have, but God created people in the image of God. So, so there's something about people that reflects the Creator. I don't think it's necessarily that any one person reflects the entirety of the image of God. Maybe God views that collectively. I'm not sure we know that. But what we do know is that the Bible is clear that people were created in the image of God. That is some sacred image there. Why would I say it's sacred? Well, think about it. Go back to the Ten Commandments again. The Ten Commandments forbid the followers of God from making images of God. We are not to make idols. I think most Christians understand that. But here and now it says that God created people in the image of God. So somehow people bear the image of God and people, those same people, are forbidden to create an idol that represents God or any other idol for that matter. So creating the image of God is very significant. It's also important to notice in Genesis that only people were created in the image of God. Only people, not any other aspect of creation was created in the image of God. Only people. It's also important to notice that God created people, and he says he created them male and female. Interesting, something we might overlook, but I'm indebted to Victor Hamilton, who wrote a very robust commentary on Genesis. Really highly recommend it. But no other animal in all of creation is distinguished as male and female at creation. Only people. Only people created in the image of God are distinguished as male and female. It wasn't, as the Bible tells the story, it wasn't until the story of Noah and the flood that the concept of male and female is introduced in terms of the other animals of creation. So here from the beginning, men and women, male and female, stand out from all of the other created animals as being created in God's image and being created male and female. So, because of that, we can understand that being male, being female, is a gift of God. Now, that's very important because a lot of this transgender ideology says that God made a mistake. You've probably heard that. People will say, well, it's a mistake. I'm in the wrong body. Hold on now. Go back to the Bible. Do we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God to understand that, that this is a gift that God gave humans at creation to be male or female? It's not a mistake. It's a gift of God. Maybe you know somebody that struggles with being male or being female. Perhaps what they have missed in all of that is the recognition that their being a boy or a girl is a gift from God to them. 
yeah, I think they're also a gift to all of us because our friends and our families are gifts to us. But they may not realize that God, by making them a boy or a girl, has given them a gift that God wanted them to have. They're special that way. Maleness, femaleness is a gift from God. It's not an accident. God is very purposeful, as he tells the story here, very purposeful in how he created, and he created people distinctly, male or female, and we should not overlook that. We must not diminish that. That is a very significant understanding. Also, I think it's important to look at verse 28. And just the beginning of it says that after God created humans, male and female, after he gave them his image, endowed them with the image of God, verse 28, it said, God bless them. So not only were you created female or male, but you, according to Genesis, by virtue of creation, were blessed. You have this gift of God and this blessing of God to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. And we need to receive that gift from God and not resist it. Now, because of these realities from the Bible, we have a good foundation to answer transgender ideology. We have a good understanding of what God has done, and it should help us then practice wisdom. So based upon what we've learned just from this little bit in Genesis, it gives us every foundation to push back against the transgender ideology. If you don't think about it in any other way, the realization that God created people in his image, and he created them male and female on purpose, and it's a gift that God created male and female, not a mistake, we begin to think of it in those terms, then, then we realize there couldn't be an accident. God is very purposeful in creating us distinctly male and female. And by the way, it's a little bit off the subject, but not much. Male and female in humans goes all the way to, to the cellular level. You cannot escape it if you want to. Now, of course, most of us don't want to, and that's good. But what the transgender ideology fails to come to grips with is that the bio biology goes far beyond outward looks or physical design. It goes all the way to every single cell in a person's body. And you can't change that. It's just not changeable. We are male or we are female. Thanks be to God. That's a gift from God. And we need to celebrate that gift, don't you think? It's about time we did. And it's about time we used the Bible as a foundation for giving answers to the transgender ideology. Now, because we understand this, then a few other things we might ought to think about. First of all is this. It's not a stretch by any means to consider transgender ideology as an attack on the image of God in people. Well, that's a kind of a long way to say it. What do you mean by that? Well, transgender ideology attempts to convince us that we are not fixed in our creation as male or female. And if we are not fixed, then we could be whatever we decide we are going to be, 
And that flies in the face of the gift God gave us as being created in his image and as being created male and female. And so transgender ideology, by its very attempt to change that, is an attack on the image of God in people. Now think about that. Where might that come from? Who might want to attack the image of God in people? Well, I can think of the enemy of our souls for sure, the one we call Satan. It's a diabolical and devious thing to attack the image of God in people. And it's a diabolical and devious thing to lead people astray on that issue. So I'm convinced that this transgender ideology, whether they say it or not, whether they admit to it or not, it's not important to me. But at heart, it's an attack on the image of God in people. Now, when we think of the idea of male and female as being gifts from God to people, then that changes everything. Because if God has purposefully given us a gift, then our response is to receive it with thanksgiving. We shouldn't reject it. We should say, thanks be to God for his remarkable gift that we are men or we are women. So the gifts of male or female to people are God's gift to us. They're also the will of God for us. You see, if God has given us a gift that he wants us to be male or female, then it's his will for us to be male or female. And if we rebel against the will of God, isn't that like rebelling against the will of God when it comes to any other aspect of our behavior? Isn't stealing rebelling against the will of God? If we were to make an idol, wouldn't that be rebelling against the will of God? If we fail to honor our fathers and our mothers, isn't that rebellion against the will of God? Well, of course it is. And we need to understand what God is saying here. And we need to understand that when we rebel against the will of God, and that's what transgender ideology is doing, it's saying, God doesn't know what he's doing, and I don't want what God has given me. It's out-and-out rebellion against God. It is a very serious situation. Not just because it does great harm to the people involved, and we could talk about that and Maybe we will at some point. I, I'm not sure if we want to get into that. I know we won't today. But we need to not leave this idea until we come to grips with that the transgender ide- ideology really is attacking the image of God in people. And I don't hear many people describing it that way. In fact, I don't know if I've heard anybody describe it that way. So I'm either early to the discussion or, or wrong. Uh, I'll let you help me figure that out. Uh, I I think it's clear when you look at the Bible that transgender ideology is an attack on the image of God in people. You see, transgender ideology says that that we can be whatever we want to be on a sliding scale between male and female. There's a whole lot wrong with that whole concept of transgender stuff, but you get the idea. And so when when we adopt that, then we're attacking that God made us in his image, and on purpose he made us a certain way. And the gifts of male and female to people are to be received, not rebelled against. And when we rebel against God, that puts us in a very dangerous place. So we go back to this grid. We recognize that in considering transgender ideology, we recognize that, that Christ 
and to give him primacy is to recognize that he is creator. He created the heavens and the earth. He created people, and it's very specific in Genesis. God created humans. God created humans in his image. So recognizing that Christ was at creation puts him in the first place, in the right place, to say, okay, we need to hear what he has to say. When we look at the priority of Scripture, then we say, now, wait a minute, God is telling us the truth, and we can trust him with that. And so when we look at Genesis and we go through what I've just gone through, just a little bit of a discussion about what it means to be male and female, we, when we prioritize Scripture, then we have to ask ourselves, now, wait a minute, if anything disagrees with this, then it's not correct. If anything disagrees with what God says here, I have to seriously step back and say, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. I can't allow this, and I have to recognize that it falls short of my framework for evaluation because when I prioritize Scripture, it tells me something different. It tells me that I'm made in the image of God, that God gave me the gift of being male or female. And I have to take that seriously. It's God's will because he gave me that gift on purpose for me to be male or female. And he didn't make a mistake. He blessed being male or female. See, that's one of the ways we prioritize Scripture, and we have to use that understanding of the Bible as we look at this understanding of transgender ideology, and we ask, does it measure up? And, of course, it doesn't. Then we come to, well, then creates us a challenge. If we're going to be true to trusting God, if we're going to have faith, then we're going to definitely make a commitment to pursue truth. And if we look at this and we come to the conclusion and say, well, now hold on a minute, this transgender ideology cannot be true because it disagrees with what God has clearly told us. Well, then we have to face another decision. Are we going to hang on to the truth, or are we going to compromise it somehow? Well, who's it hurting? Or, well, why should I care? Or, well, they seem like nice people. Okay, maybe so. Nobody's attacking anybody that disagrees with this, not me. I'm saying we need to pursue the truth. I'm not attacking someone who disagrees. I'm asking them to consider the God who created them tells us how he created us in his image. He tells us he created us male and female. It's a gift that he's given us on purpose, and he blessed us in that. Why would I not believe that and pursue that line of understanding, recognize that as truth, and base my responses then on that reality? See, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about standing up for that which is true, not because we want to be offensive. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people these days, well, they, they just, they're kind-hearted. I'm glad they're kind-hearted, but they need to be a little more rigorous with the truth. Being kind-hearted and, and um, nice to people is, is all well and good, but it really doesn't help them very much. I uh, think probably some of you have heard this statement. I want, to, I want to give you this quote from Thomas Sowell. He says, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. You see, that's what happens too many times when it comes to these conflicts and when truth has to be defended. We, we 
are uncomfortable because we know they'll disagree with us. We're uncomfortable because maybe they will demagogue us. We're uncomfortable because maybe they will reject us. We're uncomfortable because we don't like the conflict. And so we tend to move in their direction to be nice to them in the hopes that when they see that we're nice to them, they'll turn and agree with us. Well, Thomas Sowell says that's just simply helping ourselves. Let me read that again. When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. See, when we tell people what they want to hear, it's just avoiding a conflict that we want to avoid. And that doesn't help. Well, I really thank you for listening today. And I know we got into a kind of a an interesting subject. I think people think it's controversial. I don't think this stuff is controversial. I think it's quite clear what God has said to us, and we just need to come to grips with it and find ways to stand for what God has said and to help people. We don't help people when we lie to them. We don't help people when we fudge the truth. So I want to encourage you to to stand up for that which is right. Do it in a kind, winsome, carefully, prayerfully thought out way, but be committed to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and he will bring life to the people you care about most. I'm Pastor Rick.